0: Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we speak with Anne Kokas, Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and author of the award-winning book, Hollywood Made in China. We cover a lot of ground in this 30-minute episode, talking about the major players in the China cinema ecosystem, Hollywood's tendency to self-censor to make sure they are kosher with the PRC, and whether this influences the types of movies getting funded or even the writing and casting. Naturally, we turned our attention to the release of Mulan in China's theaters this weekend and talk about the tepid response it received there and why, as well as any impact the impending ban on WeChat or TikTok might have on the movie industry in China. Enjoy.
1: The challenge is what we're seeing is an emerging focus on one kind of Han Chinese narrative that's supported by the Chinese government. So we're we're seeing a lot of Chinese voices clouded out from the perspective of the Chinese government. And then from the perspective of Hollywood, we're also seeing this kind of commercial narrowing. So in some ways, it's this tunnel that's narrowing as the Venn diagram between what's acceptable from a commercial standpoint in Hollywood and what's acceptable from a political standpoint in China starts to narrow the whole context.
0: Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. And welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So you are Greek-American, but you write and pay a lot of attention to China. So tell us a bit about your China story.
1: So I actually was fortunate to have Chinese classes in my high school. And so I started studying Chinese when I was 16. I went to the University of Michigan and they had a study abroad program at Peking University. So when I was when I went to Beida, I started, you know, kind of getting deep into things. And the funny part was my roommates were Japanese and Korean, and I started speaking Chinese with a Japanese and Korean and American accent. So I was like, I really need to kind of move out of this, this international student dorm. And one day I was at this um, cafe in Beijing called Sculpting in Time. And I just happened to be flipping through That's Beijing. This will tell you how old of a story this is. And I saw a classified ad for a fashion student living in the Beijing film studio who was looking for an American roommate. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. So I went and I met her and we hit it off immediately. We're still very, very good friends. She um, she's like a third generation Beijinger, but now lives in California. And that's kind of how my journey to studying China and studying Chinese film specifically began.
0: Tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing, the work you do now, uh, where you work now and how it relates to China. And then tell us about your book.
1: All right. Thank you. So right now, I'm an associate professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. And what that means is that I teach students about U.S.-China media and technology relations. I'm also a senior faculty fellow at the Miller Center for Public Affairs at, Univ- at the University of Virginia, where I do a lot of work related to U.S.-China policy. So the focus of my work is on how Corporations and um and the US and Chinese government are interacting in the space of media and tech. So I write and I teach about Chinese cinema and Chinese cinema in Hollywood. Um, but then I've also started to look more broadly at tech and entertainment and the US. So I'm writing a new book right now that looks at Chinese consumer data gathering. In the U.S. and U.S. consumer data gathering in China, which evolved out of my first book, Hollywood Made in China. Um, so, Hollywood Made in China talks about how Hollywood studios have tried to enter the Chinese market, all of the myriad different ways that they failed, um, mm-hmm. and the very few successes that they had. I also talk a little bit about how Chinese studios and Chinese investors are trying to work within a Hollywood studio context. The big argument of the of the book is that. Ultimately, what we can see in the context of Hollywood and China is that as the Chinese market grows, Hollywood studios, rather than making films for other global markets or for the U.S. market um, and the North American market, as they have historically, they're going to start increasingly focusing on how to navigate the China market to the exclusion of um, the interests of other countries. And I think we've really seen that in the case of Mulan, um, which I which I look forward to talking about with you over the podcast.
0: Who are the major players in this ecosystem uh, on the chinese side and on the u s side?
1: So on the u s side, we have all the big studios um, so paramount, universal um, we have the we have DreamWorks, which had a large investment in China. We have Disney, which has even bigger investments both in production and in theme parks. um on the Chinese side, we have key players like the China film group, which is the kind of biggest state run film group, the Shanghai film group. We also have people, we also have um, organizations like Alibaba pictures and Netflix and, or um, Alibaba and Tencent pictures, which are increasing their investment in Hollywood.
0: How are tech companies like Tencent and Alibaba getting into the cinema game?
1: So they're getting into the cinema game in much the same way that tech companies in the U S are. So Companies like Netflix uh, have these huge production budgets, as do places like Alibaba and, and Tencent. And the reason that they're doing that is because by producing content, they're able to then drive traffic to their platforms. So it's kind of a, a vertically integrated strategy. The other thing is these are really cash-rich companies, so they provide a valuable service for more traditional media companies that may not just have these kind of massive influxes of, of money coming in.
0: What about platforms like Netflix? Is, do they exist in China?
1: So platforms like Netflix in the China context are really, really interesting. So I actually wrote a book about this, um, called, or I wrote an article about this called Chilling Netflix, um, that I think that goes into this in, in greater depth. But essentially what Netflix's China strategy has been is to try to enter the market in any way that it can, um, It's been very difficult for them to enter as a platform. However, they have exported content, so they've exported specific shows to China. Now, the interesting part about this is then the shows have been streamed on Chinese platforms, like for example, iQIYI, uh, increasing the number of increasing the number of subscribers by improving the, the content on that platform. Then iQIYI comes back to the U.S and does a um, and prepares for an IPO. So Netflix in some ways is training, training up and improving the game for its competitors in its efforts to enter the Chinese market.
0: Do you know if there's a business side to that as far as Netflix JVs or take some sort of equity or ownership stake, knowing that the end game is likely them playing some sort of cross-border vehicle role towards the IPO for their Chinese partner?
1: So my understanding is that Netflix has not yet succeeded in creating a joint business venture. They've only been able to sell products, specifically selling content.
0: That's too bad. I would imagine that would be something that they... I mean, if the trend continues, that should be something that you would think they would start angling towards, but I know that it can be difficult. Is there, is there no, if they partner with IQI, does that exclude them from being able to partner with other Chinese platforms?
1: So they have actually tried um, different versions of kind of the, of a joint venture model or a kind of corporate corporate model. Um, Mm. And they, they pulled back and they all kind of, they all kind of failed. So the IQI content distribution model is really, has has recently been their only kind of medium-level success. And as, as we're talking about here, it's not really the optimal outcome, right? I mean, they would presumably want to be able to operate their platform there. The problem is, mm-hmm. and this is where my book, Hollywood Made in China, connects with my current research, is that for Netflix to operate in China, they start gathering large amounts of data about people in China, and that becomes a political non-starter.
0: What percentage of movies do you estimate are self-censored these days due to the desire to get past Chinese regulators and be widely accepted and open for business in China?
1: So that's a really tough question. It's hard to know. First of all, what does self-censorship mean? Is Mm -hmm. it, so studios would say, Oh, we're just looking for content that would appeal to a global audience um, to, that tells universal stories. And this is how, you know, places like the motion picture association mm-hmm. studios will frame their discussions. Um, or there's also this level of like, Oh, this is, this content is a total non-starter because it won't play in the China market. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's hard for, it's hard to know because that stuff happens in development meetings that are, that are proprietary. The interesting thing about this is we know that it happens. Um, so in the Sony hack, there were some examples of, of, of films that were, um, where there was kind of an explicit dis- discussion about how it would play out in the China market. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of, um, in the case of Dr. Strange, one of the screenwriters came out and said, yeah, obviously we changed the the Tibetan character because we didn't want to alienate the China market. So it, it ends up coming out in in small pieces, I think one thing that we can be certain of is that any studio executive that's making a a movie that's above $100 million is at a very minimum considering it.
0: At the end of the day, given how narcissistic Hollywood has typically been, that this really is, is, is a great thing, that they start to look uh, beyond the U.S. borders and start to understand other markets, and this will actually help break down some maybe, you know, uh, cinema-led cultural barriers that will even help a more broad global understanding of the rest of the world in general for a lot of U.S. moviegoers?
1: When I wrote the first draft of Hollywood Made in China, which was my dissertation at UCLA, the way that I finished it was, this is an amazing opportunity for the Provincialism and the kind of lack of global perspective of Hollywood to be broken down, and I do think that's true. The challenge is what we're seeing is an emerging focus on one kind of Han Chinese narrative that's supported by the chinese government so we're we're seeing a lot of Chinese voices clouded out um, from the perspective of the U.S. uh, from the perspective of the Chinese government. And then from the perspective of Hollywood, we're also seeing this kind of commercial narrowing. So in some ways, it's this narrow it's this tunnel that's narrowing as the Venn diagram between what's acceptable from a commercial standpoint in Hollywood and what's acceptable from a political standpoint in China starts to narrow the, the whole context, the whole context. So I'm not as optimistic as I once was. Though I do think that it's awesome that there are more stories that are being told from other countries, actors that are being hired from different racial and ethnic groups. And that is a trend that I really hope takes hold. But I'm not certain that it will ultimately expand the range of stories that are going to be told in Hollywood.
0: The lens um, that has now been added um, that is a focus on what plays well in the Chinese market, is that going to impact, is that going to shift the style of movies that Hollywood produces? Uh, if car chases aren't, you know, a big thing uh, that resonates with a Chinese audience, will that slowly start to maybe move away as being prevalent in movies such as it is today because it's not as well received there?
1: So I think that that is definitely a possibility that we'll slowly start to see certain trends that work well in China become popular in Hollywood as well. But I think that I think that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. If that, you know, if it's things like car chases and more or less car chases or, hey, I mean, if there are fewer football movies, because football isn't a thing in China, like I'm all, I'm here for it. Like, I think that would be amazing (laughs) because frankly, like American football movies are like the most boring thing ever from my perspective. And there's such a big deal here. So, you know, there's, there are those possibilities. And that I think is the kind of stretching where we see an expansion or a different, a different aperture in terms of how we think about culture and how we think about, how we think about everything. Um, The part that concerns me is when we're thinking about the kind of rich history of Hong Kong cinema and the, the ways in which the Hong Kong film landscape in China has been, has been really kind of constrained recently. And I wonder what, if the types of Chinese films that we'll be seeing will really be reflective of the richness of Chinese film culture that we saw in you know the films of Wonkar Y, or the films of the fifth generation or the sixth generation, or will it be a flattening where there's this kind of focus on highly commercial fare that doesn't offend anybody?
0: That's so fascinating. I can't I can't help but think of like how many how many prevalent Hollywood superstars today wouldn't be in Hollywood if it wasn't for football movies. Like where where would Sean Astin be Ugh. if he wasn't able to come back from Goonies with with Rudy? i mean you know would you still be a hollywood figure
1: i don't know but if i never hear another rudy reference again i'll be it'll i'll be fine with it <laughs> but, but again i'm a lady professor so i'm definitely not the demographic for those movies i would
0: still hope that waterboy would have been made though that's that's all i hope you can you can take my rudy but don't take Waterboy. all
1: right all right we can agree on that we can agree on that
0: how active are chinese investors in Hollywood? And if they're if they're playing roles in there, do they have unique role requests as far as maybe even being involved in the editorial or post-production decisions for movies?
1: So from my research, what I have observed is that the Chinese producers in in Hollywood, specifically in investors like Tencent Pictures and Alibaba Pictures, haven't taken a, a kind of active activist role in terms of what the content is. I mean, we do see maybe a couple more Asian American characters, which again, I think is great. Um, and if that is the outcome of more Chinese investment in Hollywood studio films, like let that, that sounds like an amazing outcome. And I, and I'm, and I'm all for it. Um, Tencent, for example, has not been really heavily involved from with a, from an editorial perspective in a lot of the content that they produce at least according to reports um there was the incident with hearthstone the gaming platform and the the censoring of the hong kong player but that but that isn't clear that it was done by tencent or if it was done by by blizzard so we'll see what happens there um, that doesn't mean that things won't change in the future And that doesn't mean that the Chinese government doesn't have kind of levers to pressure Alibaba pictures and Tencent pictures to make those changes. At this point, it seems more like a business decision. But again, these firms are domiciled in China and there are there's an increasingly tight business environment there.
0: Can I talk about casting and casts for a moment? One of the things that has been seen, read on our side doing research for this show was that some people from Hollywood maybe say that part of the reason that there isn't more diverse casts in their movies is because they don't play as well at the Chinese box office. So is that true? First off, where is the data? is there data that supports these kind of theses and you know does this 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 mean that if an audience is less interested in watching movies featuring people of color does that really impact and drive decisions that studios are making around how they cast for movies
1: yeah so i think this is a really really challenging issue there's a great piece about colorism in chinese cinema Uh, written by Manuel Hermosillo, I think it was in 2017, where they do kind of experimental data, where they do an an analysis of experimental data about the films that were released in China. And they did find kind of clear colorism, both in Chinese films and in Western films that were released in China. So that is a a serious concern. That being said, I mean, there are a lot of Indian films that have done extremely well in China. So, So in some ways, I think that might be a combination of a lack of great roles for people of color in Hollywood. Yeah. So if there aren't great roles, then those films won't necessarily perform as well. Or if there aren't a lot of examples and it's just, you know, you only have black Panther and maybe three other films, then it's hard. It's hard to actually establish a strong track record. I don't think that it should be a situation where, you know, actors of color have to create blockbusters Every single time, just in order to be on screen in global markets.
0: How well is Bollywood or even other uh, cinema, uh, cultural cinema hubs from around the world? How well are they doing in China?
1: So Bollywood has had a couple of hits in China. Um, Three Idiots did really well. There, um, there was a wrestling film that did really well, and it it had an extended release in China at the same time that Modi. Visited Xi Jinping, so there was a kind of clear political connection there as well. And during that during that summer when uh, when Modi visited, she also talked about the importance of having you know kind of access to a wide variety of global films. And I think this was a this was a shot across the bow to Hollywood, saying you know we don't have to let Hollywood studio films in. We there are all these other global films that we can use to to grow our market. And then of course there. You know, Korean, Korean media has been popular in China, Japanese media. Those are much more politically complicated, I think, even than Hollywood is. But so is India. I mean, so we really are in a situation where the film distribution landscape in China is very much tied into the geopolitical relationships between the different countries. And I think that from a strategic perspective for the Chinese government, it makes sense to... Kind of allow all of these different national film industries to participate in the Chinese market. In terms of Bollywood, it's really interesting because they have a really big export market, but haven't necessarily cracked the cracked film distribution in the U.S.
0: Let's talk about Disney's new movie, Mulan, which I recently watched. And I, I quite liked. I thought they did a good job. Um, so can we talk about Disney's reasons for making this film, or should we say remaking this film, and uh, the reception that it seems to have received uh, on on this side, on, on the North American side or the European side, and then talk a little bit about how it's been received uh, as it opened up uh, recently in China.
1: Yeah, so I... So Mulan just came out. It came out streaming on Disney Plus, um, in Memorial, on Memorial Day weekend in the U.S. market, which was kind of a blow from a financial standpoint, but U.S. theaters aren't really, are opening up very slowly. So Disney made the decision to release the film here on the stream, on a streaming platform. Now, in China, the film had a theatrical release on September 11th. The response to the Chinese theatrical release has been quite tepid. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm for the film. Um, Some criticism that it wasn't, you know, like that it wasn't innovative enough. Um, By contrast, the U.S. popular commercial response has been relatively favorable in terms of Disney consumers, Um, so people who like watching Disney movies there has been a very critical response, um, from a political standpoint in the U S about Disney's decision to film in Xinjiang, for example. Um, so, and that, and that is something that has also had an impact on Disney's financial returns in China because following all of the discussion of Mulan and Xinjiang, there was also a media blackout for, um, about discussing Mulan in the Chinese media. So that, that may have impacted the overall box office returns for the film um, when it was released.
0: What about blacklisting? Um, is it true? Uh, and how does this happen? That, uh, and, and what is the, the length of purgatory that they're put into? For studios and for actors who uh, get blacklisted by China, um, do you have any examples? And can you, you know, talk uh, about what has happened in the past?
1: So this is a this is kind of one of those challenges that's similar to the issue related to assessing how much Hollywood studios are are self-censoring. We know that um that things like Seven Years in Tibet or Kundun created problems for the studios that produced them. Um we there are actors like Richard Gere who have spoken out about the fact that they're concerned that they aren't being cast for studio films because of china blacklists um but it's not it's very difficult to get any kind of clear information about it and so to a certain degree i'm i'm kind of sharing with you the the rumors though the quinduin stuff is relatively well documented um but in term and there's and i think that this is actually part of the larger problem that studios are concerned about getting blacklisted So they're more conservative. And just this idea of a blacklist existing means that there are choices that are being made because of this hypothetical possibility.
0: At a high level, what sort of movies do Chinese audiences like? Romance, action, comedy? I mean, can you at a high level compare North American or European audiences to a Chinese audience and what typically plays well for them?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think that within a, within a Chinese context, we see um, sci-fi is very popular, animated films. Um, the costume dramas are also a big thing. Um, within we're seeing the growth of a domestic Chinese sci-fi industry, as well as a really strong domestic um, animation industry. We're also seeing the kind of continuation of the the world of costume dramas. This is something that's not popular in the North American context or the European context, at least Chinese imperial costume dramas, um, though we have our own kind of drama traditions with the, you know, the British historical Et cetera, or Westerns. Um, so those are genres that don't really play very well across the, across the, across the different uh, national contexts. What's really interesting is there has historically been a tradition of Chinese independent film um, that did really well in Europe, not as well in, in the United States. That has been struggling in recent years as a result of um, more, more strict Chinese domestic regulations
0: you got me thinking about Downton Abbey and which got me thinking about mm. these long series dramas of, you know, your breaking Bad's or your prison breaks or things like this. Are those, did those types of productions exist and are they popular in China as well?
1: So I think it, it depends on, it depends on the production. So Prison Break was a huge success in China. Like Wentworth Miller I think did way better in China than he <laughs> ever did in the United States as a as a star. Um and I think that there are serials that um or for example House of Cards um one of the one of the one of the series um or one of the seasons of House, and House of Cards did like remarkably well in China. So there is a kind of export market for American serials. The distribution is can be tricky. So there are limitations on what can be distributed on Chinese television and um, and also limitations on on what is purchased by and, and distributed by streaming platforms. So it's not a certain it's not a certainty by any means. And studios prefer to distribute theatrically because there is a kind of clearer revenue stream.
0: What are your thoughts on the proposed TikTok WeChat ban? How do you think that's going to go down? Is it going to go through? How damaging could that be to the cinema industry?
1: Oh, so the TikTok WeChat WeChat ban, I think, is really fascinating when we're thinking about the U.S.-China tech landscape. And first of all, I don't think that when it was introduced, the implications were were really fully fully assessed by the administration when it was released. Um, In the context of WeChat, it's unclear if that applies to American companies doing business in China. And if it does, that ultimately makes it almost impossible for any American company to operate their Chinese, to do that, to work on their Chinese operations. They can't, you know, their employees in, in China can't, you know, do basic tasks like communicate with people or pay for things. Uh, It also makes it very difficult to communicate between China and the U S. So I think that, if it goes through, will have a huge impact—not uh, not just on the film industry, but on any industry that operates between the U.S. and China. In the context of the TikTok ban, we saw that there is a deal that is going to be um, that is going to be evaluated between TikTok and Oracle. It's not the most obvious of of deals. Um, the other thing that's interesting about it is, it looks like it won't actually be an acquisition, but maybe a kind of a licensing deal uh, for Oracle to run TikTok's operations in the U.S. So that's a that's a relatively new model. It'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out over the next few few weeks as it goes through that approval process. Um, and I mean, the Chinese government has taken a relatively strong stance here by prohibiting the sale of TikTok's algorithm. So I think that that demonstrates the importance of, of tech platforms in the US China in the US China competitive competition.
0: It is going to be interesting. I I don't think people realize or can even possibly fathom how important WeChat is. It's not it's not like Facebook. It's not a distraction, you know, during the day. It's it's a necessity in getting work done in china and i would imagine that you know everything from 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 script dialogue and changes to paying people all happens through wechat so that would be that would be huge
1: yeah and again like huge for the film industry huge for television huge for tech um for all of those for all the companies that have many apps on wechat um, and for consumer products, how are they going to advertise? It's a huge, huge issue.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the future of the technology landscape to wrap things up. Uh, you know, the, the Internet, given the current uh, tensions between the U.S. and China, if that plays into it or not. Um, you study this. You you pay attention to this. You opine on this. What do you see happening? And is it being impacted? Is it being helped? Is there anything we can look forward to coming out of this?
1: So one thing that I think that we're seeing is a pressure to decouple, a pressure for the U.S. and China to develop independent supply chains, a pressure for, um, a pressure against cross-border border investment between the U.S. and China. That being said, the two economies are so closely entwined that pressure for decoupling is also running up against a really, really closely interacting economies. So I think that it'll it'll be very interesting to see how U.S. firms and how Chinese firms navigate this, because in some ways they're being caught in the middle of this geopolitical struggle. I'm hopeful that what this means is that there's increased innovation um, and that U.S. companies and Chinese companies push back against their respective governments in order to create a more favorable environment for global business. However, I don't know if that's actually what's going to happen. Um, I am I am relatively optimistic though that the economic stakes of continued collaboration between the US and Chinese tech industries are so high that there won't be this cleaving that we're seeing through efforts like the executive orders.
0: Anne Kokos, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Todd. It's been a pleasure.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China.